I said good morning if you didn't catch the first half of that sentence. I'm so glad that you could be here today. I'm so glad that we can sing together and now open the Word of God together. So let's do that. Open with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 13. We've been going through Jesus' parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13. And today we're going to be looking at verses 31 to 33. Matthew 13, 31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you and this is our request this morning. That you would open up our hearts, that we would understand your word. That we would be encouraged as your children and as citizens of your kingdom. We ask that you would do this through the power of your spirit this morning. Amen. I, I think I have mentioned before to you the impact that this uh, book, Killing Fields, Living Fields, has made on my life. It's written by Don Cormack, who was a missionary to Cambodia for many years. And he tells the story of the growth of the church in Cambodia, of the spread of the gospel in a, a really hostile environment. The church grew there from its inception in around the 1920s. For 50 years it grew and it was almost stamped out between 1975 and 1979 through the Khmer Rouge communist revolution in the country. In that time, during that period, only a handful of the pastors working in that country survived. One such pastor was Pastor Chan Hom. The Khmer Rouge tactics for him were different to the tactics for many others. Many received execution immediately. For him, it was psychological torture, living day by day, not knowing when the last day was, when your last day on earth would come. They worked him slowly and agonizingly. Many people were worked in this manner until death. Ulham survived by God's grace and by God's restraining hand upon the enemy. He survived through the discipline as well of prayer. He believed always that God could intervene in the Cambodian story. Eventually, he lived to see the Vietnamese takeover of the country, their defeat of the Khmer Rouge. But even after that battle, even after the, the battle was won, conditions in the country were, were really terrible. Thousands, millions of Cambodians trying to survive with almost no resources and barely any water. As the Khmer Rouge fled, they would throw dead bodies into the wells in order to poison those wells. They hid in the jungles and there were skirmishes and those hiding soldiers meant it was very dangerous still. And so Hom with his family and tens of thousands of others in villages around Batambang City, they made their way into the city that had been derelict for four years. There they all faced possible starvation and disease. Hom's own family grew sicker and sicker. 
His youngest child, an infant at the time, he held his son in his arms while his son succumbed to starvation and disease. He was brokenhearted, but he committed his child to the Lord with this prayer. Though you have granted me this great suffering, my heart has not grown small towards you. I still love you with all my heart, but it is a heart filled with tears. Well, Hom was very shaken by this chapter in their lives. He spoke of depression and being sapped of all energy. What kept him and his wife going in this time were the drips and drabs of Christians who assembled together, who made their way into the city, and he found for himself another pastor there. He went about pastoral work, prayer and care and teaching of the word. He talks about how as physical conditions began to actually improve, there was a measure of some pre-Khmer Rouge normality that came. And with that normality, he says, they began to feel these Christians the same old icy blasts of anti-Christian resentment among the people. There was as well a rapid increase in greed and corruption. He says it seemed to grow in proportion to the recovery of health and strength among the people. Nothing seemed to have changed. And so this gnawing depression, uh, it was a restless depression in his life. He could see, he said, no real hope for himself as a pastor in such an evil time and an evil place. And he felt too weak for the task at hand. Well, the Khmer Rouge were not able to stamp out his hope in their four years, their reign of terror. And so hope still survived in him. He would go on to work and to pastor, to help many, and there would still be great fruit for the Cambodian church. Now, reading through his story, I I couldn't begin to understand that that weight, that spiritual despair and depression that came over him. I've been to places where you walk through the streets and you just know there are millions of people around me and most of them do not know the Lord. I've felt that spiritual heaviness before where, you know, there's another religion that, that seems to hold impenetrable sway over people's hearts. But the truth is it doesn't really matter where you are in the world. If there are people around you, there is darkness and there is still the task of the mission at hand that we sometimes feel is overwhelming at times. Jesus' parables in Matthew 13 are given to us to give us hope, saying we are citizens of his kingdom and we have a mission We saw a couple weeks ago in the parable of the sower that we aren't to be surprised when most hearts do not receive the message of the king. When that seed falls on hard or thorny or or rocky soil, that will happen, Jesus is saying, but know as well that when you plant seeds, when you sow those seeds, some of the seed will fall on good soil. So have hope. And we saw in the parable of the wheat and the tares that there will be trouble for us as Christians as we struggle against an enemy who is actively seeking to sow opposition to God's plan and purpose in the world. But we learned he will not ultimately be successful in spoiling the harvest. And today, in the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven, these two short parables, we learn that the kingdom at times seems insignificant and small. Our works seem insignificant and small, but it is from apparent weakness and insignificance that the kingdom of heaven breaks through in power beyond what we can imagine. 
Let's unpack these little parables together. There are three points that I have for us today related to the power of the kingdom as it operates in our time, in our lives. It is an improbable power, an invisible power, and an irresistible power. Number one, let's look at the improbable power of the kingdom. I believe this is what Jesus points to in his first parable. Let me read it to you again, verse 31 and 32. Jesus says, listen to how this might have been shocking to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Now, critics quickly have jumped on this passage on Jesus' teaching here, and they've said again, you see, Scripture has made another mistake. In fact, Christ himself has made the mistake. Why do you still believe that the Bible is the inerrant Word of God? And they point to the fact that there are, in fact, in the world, seeds that are smaller than a mustard seed. And we say, oh, oh my goodness, we're going to have to throw out our Bibles and start again, right? Right? No, it's as R.C. Sproul said, it's the, he pointed out, it's the kind of excessive pedantry that completely misses Jesus' point. Jesus isn't giving here a botany lesson. He's taking a, a, an image that was common in the day and using their own language to, to make a point that they would understand. He uses hyperbole in order to make this point. Everyone would have understood it. The mustard seed was a, a picture they knew of something that's small, ordinary, Easily overlooked. And because of the clarity of the image for them, the shock of what he was saying would have hit effectively. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds, he says. No, Jesus, you, you must have it wrong. We have been waiting for centuries for this kingdom to come. We've been waiting for the Messiah to come and his kingdom to sweep away our world of enemies and usher in peace. So what Jesus is doing in this parable, as we've seen in the parables before, is he's shattering a certain idea so that he can build something else in its place. He's reorienting their thinking and ours so that we can have hope as we engage in the mission he's given us as kingdom citizens. There will be a day when Christ's kingdom fills the whole earth, the knowledge of the Lord from sea to sea, we look forward to that day. It will triumph over all opposition, but not yet and not instantly. And that's the point he's making. There will, however, be a slow and steady progress to the breaking in of this kingdom, just like the marvelous growth that we see from a tiny mustard seed growing into a huge mustard plant. The plan, Jesus says, is a tree that gives shade for all nations. It was something bigger than they had in mind, something bigger than we even now could possibly imagine. But its beginnings is a little mustard seed. What Jesus is speaking of is how the kingdom looked in that day, how it appeared to them in that moment. Remember, he came and he did ministry and he pointed to his ministry and he said to them, you look at my ministry and what do you know? The kingdom of heaven is among you. The kingdom has come because the king has come. The early church fathers said of Jesus that he is the kingdom himself. Where Jesus is, there is the kingdom. 
So in one sense, Jesus himself is like this mustard seed, his person and his work planted into the field that would see great growth. We think of his entry into the world. We see it there, don't we? The most unlikely and humble of entries. How should the Son of God come to the earth? How would God take on flesh? He was born, born among us. And surely if he's going to be born, he would be born in the great palaces of men, born into the upper echelons of society, born of a virgin, a captive girl in Israel, born in a manger. He came into the earth in a feeding trough. And where would he grow up? In a little village beside the Sea of Galilee, out of the way. How can anything good come out of Nazareth, they said of him? Certainly an unimpressive start in the eyes of the world. Isaiah 53 prophesies this. Isaiah says of him in chapter 53, 2-3, He grew up before them like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not, like a mustard seed, unworthy of our attention or thought. And think of his following, how humble the beginnings were. If you're going to start a movement with 12 men, you're, not going, to, you're going to make sure one of those slots doesn't go to a devil, don't you? And the other 11 slots wouldn't go to men like this. Nothing in the eyes of the world. Uneducated, constantly missing the point whenever he speaks, bickering among themselves, always seeking to be first, and yet these are the men that he chose. Well, through his miracles, he began to draw the crowds. He drew thousands there for the meal they thought he could give, and there he misses his chance, doesn't he? Jesus Obviously, he didn't read the Barna polls or the Lifeway surveys. He ignored all the principles of church growth because he looked at their hearts and he saw the shallowness of their interest in him. And so he began to say difficult and heavy things that scared them off. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. And so it's whittled down and we see Jesus just alone with his 12 again, back to square one, it seems. And he says to them, are you too? Are you also going to leave me like they have? Well, receiving the kingdom at this point certainly wasn't going the way that they had anticipated. But what does Peter say? Where, where else would we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. It's so small, this beginning. But it's enough. It's enough for Jesus. This heart, we trust you and we are following you to lead us into life. What about the message that they were sent to speak? The world would always frown upon the message as they frowned upon him. The kingdom is not a kingdom forced upon men, but a kingdom inaugurated through a dying king, a dying savior. In fact, in John 12, 24, we looked at this in our study of John. Jesus uses this very image of a seed dying in the ground to describe himself. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
fruit that Rome could never comprehend. They treated him with disdain. The Jews treated him with hatred and rejection. He was the seed tossed aside, tossed to the ground. They mocked him, the author of life, even as he gave his life as the seed of the kingdom. The disciples even abandoned him as hope fled from their hearts. But in that moment, that hour of his death, there was not a moment of greater cosmic importance in all the history of the world. Do you know that to be true this morning? Colossians 1, 19 to 22, Paul says, For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Are you reconciled to him today? And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Is that gospel, that, that message, is it precious to you? Precious to your heart? So precious that you can't keep it to yourself. Like they treated Jesus, so the world treats the gospel message of his kingdom this king making a kingdom of people to himself by removing the stain of sin and the wrath of God that hung over them and by giving them life. It happens quietly. Sometimes it happens slowly. And it happens in a way that seems unimpressive to the world around. But we are not unimpressed. We know in our hearts the power of the gospel, the power of the cross. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 1 from verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Do you know the cross to be the wisdom and power of God? Any moment we are tempted to lose hope in the power of the gospel at work in us or at work through us, we need to just remember the mustard seed and remember the promise that Jesus is giving here. The same principle applies to the lives of his children as they go out into the world. Paul goes on in verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Church, where is our boasting? You know, when we become hopeless in our own efforts, when we think that we are too weak to do what God has called us to do, when we look around at the world and we say there is no hope, the darkness is too much, chances are we are not focusing on Him. We are focusing on ourselves and not on Him. 
Don't underestimate what God will do through the weakness of the church. Don't underestimate small things. That's what this parable is telling us. The little meal that you share with your neighbor as you seek an opportunity to share your faith. Little acts of kindness and compassion as you go out into the world and you see people with the eyes Christ is calling you to see them through. Don't underestimate those things. Don't give up. There are seasons, there are always seasons in our lives where we, we work and we work and we toil and labor and we cannot see the fruit. We cannot see what God is doing. This parable teaches us to wait. Maybe the seed is under the ground, just wait. Carry on, don't give up. Don't be discouraged. There is no greater encouragement than the encouragement that this parable gives to us. If your desire today, earnestly and honestly, as you check your heart this morning, if your desire is that Christ would be magnified through the church, that he would be magnified in your own life, and you cling to Christ, you will see that, that true. You will see that tree growing. Number two, the invisible power of the kingdom. It's in the second parable Jesus says this, the kingdom of heaven, verse 33, is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. There are at least two things that I appreciate a little bit more having moved from Kempton Park to Hillcrest. One of them is coffee. It's a coffee crazy culture here. Um, and the other is sourdough. I love sourdough. I love bread of all kind, actually. Um, Monday is usually when I, I'm, I feel like pulling a Jonah on the, the uh, responsibilities of ministry. This is what I daydream about, uh, finding a job at some artisanal bakery where all I have in my life is the smell of bread. And sourdough apparently is healthier. Now, I told people today, don't burst my bubble if what I'm sharing here is true. And somebody came afterwards and burst my bubble and said, they don't actually make it like they used to make it in Jesus' day. I thought they did. I thought it was more godly sourdough than other kinds of bread. I, thought, I think some people do still make it this way. Apparently, you're supposed to have a starter batch, like this um, live, um, uh, uh, it goes through this fermentation process. You have this batch of culture, and, and you have to keep this thing alive. You have to treat it like one of your own children to keep it alive. And then instead of using store-bought yeast in dough, what you do is you take a little bit of that, that culture, and you put it in the dough, and that does the, the fermentation. And a tiny bit affects the whole batch. That's the point Jesus is making. And he adds this parable to the shock of what he's just said about the mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is, well, it's like a woman baking bread. Imagine what they must have thought. Leaven is a common analogy in Scripture. It's usually used as a warning, actually, about the corrupting power of sin and false teaching, right? Jesus has said, beware the, the leaven, for example, of the Pharisees. But here, Jesus is not using the analogy for something sinister, but something glorious, even though deceptively glorious. We know it's possible to underestimate the danger of sin, and that's how sin works in your life, like a little bit of leaven that spreads in your heart. But even so, Jesus is saying the kingdom is all the more potent. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. We don't know exactly how much three measures is. We just know it's a lot of dough. Some scholars think about 15 kilograms. Jesus is saying just a tiny measure of leaven will work all through that dough. That's how the kingdom of heaven works. 
from the inside out. This parable is brilliant. It's shockingly humble. And it makes an important point about the power of the kingdom. Like you take the seed and you plant it in the ground, you water it and you leave it to grow. So this woman, she takes that tiny leaven and hides it, Jesus says, inside the dough. And then it begins to work from the inside out. You see the bread begin, the dough begin to rise and spread. But what's going on is happening inside, isn't it? That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's at work always and often in ways that you can't see with your eyes. Sometimes slowly and imperceptibly, sometimes invisibly, day by day, the kingdom at work. Now you can step back and look at the bigger picture. You can see the the dough rising, maybe not day by day, but year by year, decade by decade, century by century. We look around and we see the church spreading. We see Christ's kingdom in more, more and more and more power as the gospel goes out. More and more cultures finding shade in the tree, the gospel bearing fruit and transforming lives, cultures and places, but it works in the heart. I had somebody this morning come to me to say, they, they knew and they're visiting, they said, I, I, I want to be baptized. God has done something in my heart recently. I don't know what it is. I need to speak to you. Can I be baptized as soon as possible? That's how the, the kingdom of heaven works. So we aren't to measure power the way that the world measures power. The kingdom doesn't come through expansion by external force, but by internal transformation. We tend to focus on the external, don't we? Bigger buildings, better sound, more people filling seats, more money. That's what we need. Not that those things are unimportant. I'm not saying don't invite your friends here. I'm I'm certainly not saying don't give generously to the work of the church, but the power of the kingdom is not limited to the quality of our sound. It's not limited to the skill of the preacher. Outward things, they give us the ability to do kingdom work, the ability to do spiritual work, but they are not necessarily the, the proof or the sign of spiritual health. They are not the measure of the kingdom. Sometimes you look at what's going on in the church and it looks like growth, but it's not. Other times you can't see that growth and you don't know what God's doing, but he's doing something behind the scenes. We want the spectacular and Christ often works through the ordinary and the everyday. We're impatient. We want immediate change. Disciple me and it must take a week. Uh, sanctification must be a quick process, but those things, the, the battle, the mortification of the flesh and sin, those things take blood, they take sweat and tears and time. And we need to know the power is not in us, but in Him. His kingdom breaking through in His wise timing. And there is joy to be had for those who can learn this fact, this truth, this patience. Yes, I may not see fruit right now, but God is telling me to carry on, to get up and go again, to share again, to trust in His power again. Galatians 6 verse 9, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not give up, church. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Doesn't matter how it looks, your labor is not in vain in Christ. Number three, finally, we see the irresistible power of the kingdom. The irresistible power of the kingdom. In Daniel chapter 4, 
Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. It is the greatest world power at the time. And he has this dream. And in a dream, he sees this tree that grows larger and larger and larger. And it gives shade to the beasts of the earth. And the birds of the, the heavens find nesting place in the tree. But then an angel comes down in his vision and commands that this tree be chopped down so that the beasts have to flee, the birds fly away. And he wants an interpretation to his dream. Only Daniel can be found to give that interpretation. And Daniel explains to him, O king, the tree is your kingdom. It's impressive and large and it's grown and grown so that nations find rest in its branches. But because of your pride, and sin, it will be taken away from you. And there have been many outwardly impressive kingdoms throughout the history of the world, Egypt and Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome and some afterwards, and what do they all have in common? They're all gone, or they're all fading away. Every single world power falls at some point. They will not last. Well. A little while before Nebuchadnezzar had this dream in Daniel 4, Ezekiel is prophesying, saying that Judah will go into exile. And in chapter 17, he prophesies a return. He prophesies um, God saying, like, God's going to take a tiny uh, sprig from a tree and plant that, and that's going to be the remnant of Israel. Ezekiel 17, 22 to 23, Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel I will plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every bird, every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And Jesus comes and says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. A mustard seed planted in the ground so that a great, great tree grows up and the birds find shade. They find nesting place. So this is the plan for the church. It's God's unstoppable plan. Every tribe, every nation, every tongue finding shade, seeing him as king. And it is a tree that will not be cut down. Nations have tried. Kingdoms have tried. Men have tried to cut down this tree, tried to drive the birds from its shade, but there is no ax that can do it. There's no kingdom that can oppose Christ's kingdom, no throne to rival his eternal dominion. We've seen kingdom after kingdom oppose him. All the while, his influence and his reign spreading like leaven in the kingdoms of the world. The nations rage and the king laughs. He doesn't need the permission of any ruler. He doesn't need the permission of any king for his kingdom to grow. The hearts of kings are as a river in his hand. And whenever the enemy's rage is fiercest, we know the truth, right? The blood of the martyrs is what? It's the seed of the church. When you look at the world around you, maybe, maybe even today you feel like this. You're looking at it like Pastor Hom was looking in that moment of despair where the darkness feels overpowering and the task is overwhelming. The church is facing great trouble. Maybe today you feel your own faith is like that. It's vulnerable. It's small. It's weak. It's fragile. It's not about our power. It's about His promise. And if we look around us, what do we see? We see it coming true, right? 
2,000 years later, this tree has been growing person after person, people after people, culture after culture, every tribe and tongue hearing the gospel even today more and more. Countries that were once closed to the gospel now have churches underground and they are sending out missionaries themselves by the score. The gospel will not be stopped. The church is going to be built by the Lord. He will save the elect so that all, everyone written in the Lamb's book of life will stand before the throne, will stand before the Lamb to declare his glory and honor and praise. Worthy is the Lamb. And we are called to hope. We are called to have confidence in his power, in the, in the power of the Holy Spirit. We know that he can move. Are we praying for it, church? Are we seeking that? Are we yearning for it? Pastor Hom remained faithful even in his weakness, one little task at a time, one little thing after another. Eventually, he and his family found themselves with a ragtag group of Christians coming into a refugee camp just over the Thai border. They went there to, um, to find some shade and some help. And he would serve there for a while. He served many, many scores of people, broken people with the gospel. From there, he would even agree to go to a more dangerous place, a, a grim and hostile detention camp for captured Khmer Rouge soldiers. And he, what he did there was he pastored a church that was springing up even there, the un, most unlikely of plants. Don Cormack writes, he was a missionary and he was serving in that refugee camp when Hom and, and the, the church entered. He was bringing Bibles and other literature and supplies for the people to give and, and meeting, being reunited with Hom after four years of not seeing him. Uh, Pastor Hom agreed to help Cormac in this endeavor. And I just want to read to you something of the account of that day. He writes, all the Christians with their families and friends around them seated themselves on the ground beside the tall bamboo. They wasted no time in discarding their black Khmer Rouge garments and soon looked again like typical Cambodian country folk, only much thinner. And facing them, sitting cross-legged behind a cardboard box full of Cambodian Bibles and hymn books was Pastor Hom. These precious books he began to distribute among his people, most of whom had lost all their Christian literature. It was now time to worship and thank God for all these blessings. Using the cardboard box as his lectern upon which he placed his own tattered old Bible, he began exhorting his listeners, taking the opportunity clearly and simply to explain the facts of the gospel to all the curious onlookers. I was walking back to the truck for more literature when the singing began. It was so unusual to hear a chorus of voices singing together in unison in such a place as this that I stopped to watch. The golden colors of evening washed the sky and the camp was relatively still. As the growing awareness dawned upon them that yes, they could sing here without fear of death, their voices grew in volume and ardor. Before long, I was unable to see the Christians for the vast crowd which had gathered around them to behold the amazing spectacle. Hearing only the sound of their voices from within the midst of the crowd, I began to concentrate on the words they were now singing with a quality of rapture and a conviction I had never heard before or indeed since. It was an old, much-loved hymn translated from the English 
The last time I heard it sung was in 1975 at Noah's church on the waterfront of besieged Phnom Penh. That was just before they entered the fiery crucible. And here, now here among the exiles, it sounded again, the love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong it shall forevermore endure, the saints and angels sung. And the Lord whispered to me in that moment, they came forth from the furnace with no smell of the burning upon them, no trace of bitterness, no anger, no why this or why that. But there they were, kneeling in the dust, ragged and hungry, all having lost at least one family member to the Khmer Rouge, extolling the love of God. They were rich with the fragrance of the knowledge of Him, a fragrance acquired, no doubt, from walking closely to the Son of God through the flames. And I was convinced that they would have extolled the strong love of God, as indeed others had, even to the grave. For with suffering Job they could repeat, Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Little wonder the crowds were drawn irresistibly to them that day. They were being attracted not to religion, not to a band of defiant survivors, but to the aroma of Christ lingering naturally about these very plain earthen vessels there in the shade of the bamboo along the war-ravaged border. Pastor Hom had come to this area of the camp that day because he had heard that it was a good place for digging wells. Yet there within them was the wellspring of pure thirst-quenching water which many others in the camp were searching for. The scent of it as it welled up from within these Christians and as it became later a spring in the waterless depths of the Khao Wan Dung holding center of over 120,000 refugees would produce a great and a spreading tree, a new tree but growing out of an old stump whose branches would reach into all the world. Have you found shade under the branches of that tree this morning? Is that gospel message so wonderful to you that it's like a fire shut up in your bones that you cannot keep it to yourself? Church, may we grow more and more in that. Or is this something that even today you shrug off as unimportant? Do you dismiss the claims of this king and yawn at his word? Do not deny him today. Pick up your cross and follow him. Come to him and find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the encouragement of your word. We thank you for the hope that you provide to us through these words. We pray, Lord, that you would just fill our hearts with that hope this week. We pray, Lord, against the fear that would keep us from doing your work, the fear that would keep us from sharing our faith. We pray, Father, against the despair, even the depression that, that many are facing looking at the world around them, maybe their own worlds, Father, the workplace, what's going on in families. Lord, we know that at times the darkness seems overpowering. But Lord, we know that we are more than conquerors through you. And so I pray, Father, again, that you would fill us with a love for Jesus, fill us with a desire to see your kingdom come and send us into the world, we pray. Amen. I want to remind you, um, if you would like somebody to pray 
with you or for you. There are people available here at the front if you have any questions related to what you've heard. If you want to know more about the gospel, you're not sure what the gospel is, that is a conversation I know many, many people in this church would love to have, and it's something I would, a conversation I certainly would love to have with you as well. So please come and, and chat to us about that. I'm going to share with you as a benediction today before we go, Galatians 6, verse 9 and 18. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen.